This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today's episode is going to focus on federalism and uh, the longstanding but also recently very controversial debates in our society about the appropriate jurisdiction and authority for the federal government, state government, local governments. Uh, These are longstanding debates in American democracy, but they're debates that, as most listeners know, debates that have heated up uh, in recent years. And we have with us, I think, one of the most interesting and recognized people writing about these issues. He's certainly my favorite author author on these issues today, uh, my colleague, Professor Stephen Vladek from the UT Law School. Uh, Steve, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jeremy. It's a real treat. Uh, Steve is the A. Dalton Cross Professor in Law at the UT Law School, and he is, as I said, a nationally recognized expert on federal courts, constitutional law, national security law, military justice, uh, and frequently commenting on these issues for the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, various other places. It seems as if I see Steve all the time when I'm uh, looking up these issues. Uh, I'm very jealous of Steve because he's been able to do something that I will never be able to do as a historian. He's been able to argue multiple cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, and maybe some point in the future we'll have Steve on to talk about that. That just seems like such a cool activity. Well, we have, I mean, uh, we have the same number of victories, Jeremy. So, <laughs> you know, I always say I'm the king of lost causes, Steve. There, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Steve is the co-host of of another podcast, which is really well worth listening to. I, I recommend it to all of our listeners. It's the National Security Law Podcast. He does it uh, with another colleague and friend, uh, Professor Bobby Chesney from the law school, and it's a great podcast because they talk about these issues and they debate them and show that it's possible to have a civil conversation about many of these issues. In addition to all that, as I said, Steve is an active uh, educator of the public, an active writer about these issues in uh, public journals. Uh, And I want to bring our listeners' attention in particular to a piece he published in the Washington Post on July 25th, uh, which looks at the constitutional issues, which we will talk about in the second half of this podcast, uh, surrounding uh, the deployment of federal law enforcement. Uh, in Portland and and other cities. And Steve offers, I think, the most sophisticated understanding of what's legal, what's not legal, what's constitutional, what what isn't in this sense. Before we turn to our conversation with Steve, of course, we have Zachary's scene-setting poem for today. What is the title of your poem, Zachary? Still. Very short title. Okay, let's hear it. Crossing into Clovis now is like crossing into the present from the past. In Texas, the Dairy Queens are open as usual, and at the gas stations, the door handles are touched and passed on to lackadaisical newcomers in the sun. And license plates aren't the only things that change in New Mexico. Road signs blare warnings of contagion. Shelves are stocked with sanitizer, and the masks are worn across so many mouths in the moonlit parking lots. It is a state, a couple counties, and a world away, still with the same stars glaring in your eyes as you stare at the sinking bars of the orange-red, off-white, and sky-blue sunsets, the same courthouses and instruments of democracy, still adolescent and mostly allegorical. And I thought similarly of federalism as I watched the casket of conscience cross over the Iron Bridge yesterday, over the River Alabama and the baked mud of Dallas County the somber horses marching towards Montgomery with the mythical man. The flag, draped over the resting body of our collective soul, rising on the same steps of the state capitol, the white marble and the black clothing, two steps from the altar of the Confederacy. 
and we waved goodbye to the man as he made his deserved pilgrimage to Washington. Set down on the floor of the fathers and the mothers, we mourned and cried still because the body lay in a nation not yet achieved, because the legend died before the victory was even in view, because the conscience was still crippled, because the same distant stars were still waving and the same sirens spinning like hallucinations above Albuquerque and Austin and above the angelic mothers of Portland, waving, smiling despite the tear gas. We are living still despite the stillness, despite the stubbornness. We are living still despite the forgotten words, despite the forgotten precepts. We are living still despite the stillness, despite the stillness of our dead. I love, Zachary, the way you bring together uh, John Lewis's passing, uh, crossing the border to New Mexico yourself, and um, obviously the recent events in our cities. Uh, What is your poem about? My poem is really about uh, the decentralized nature of democratic change, how uh, the, the manifestations of democratic change and a new generation of Americans comes not necessarily in the halls of Washington, but all over this country in, in county seats, in state capitals, and in small towns and big cities alike. That's great, Zachary, and a, and a perfect space to talk to uh, Steve about these issues now, a perfect entry point. Uh, Steve, one of the things that, that always strikes my students about American government is, uh, echoing what Zachary said, how complex it is, how many le- different levels we have. How do we think about federalism? What has federalism meant as a sort of legal framework for our society from, from its founding? Uh, what, what does it really mean? How, how should we think about it? It's a great question. I mean, I think the federalism, when I think about it, when I teach it to, to first-year law students, um, really is a double-edged sword. Um, and it's it's a principle that the founders, at least, anticipated would increase liberty by increasing the means through which governments could be held accountable. And so, you know, Justice Kennedy's called it the unique contribution of the American founders to political science, um, splitting the atom of sovereignty, where power was divided between a central federal government that had some but not plenary power um, and the governments of the individual states, which would have you know residual powers on all matters of local concern. And the idea was that by doing it this way, you'd maximize both the sort of um, powers of government in the abstract, but also the opportunities to check abuses because the federal government would exert authority over states, states would exert authority over the federal government, and that somewhere in between there, you'd have very much the same idea uh, vertically, Jeremy, that, you know, Madison right. talked about with regard to the horizontal separation of powers. So, right. you know, that was the ideal, at least, although I think it's, you know, it's been a bit of a, an awkward go um, over the, the 233 years we've had a constitution. And, and I think one of the, the real insights in what you said, Steve, is there's no formula for this, right? It's, it's a constant balancing and rebalancing, right? That's right. And I think part of that's because the, the powers of the federal government, which we might think of as the independent variable, um, are constantly evolving. Um, so, you know, the federal government at the time of the founding was very small, didn't do very much, didn't have very much responsibility. And so, you know, federalism, certainly in the pre-Civil War era, um, tilted very heavily toward states. Um, but that, you know, one of the real innovations of the Civil War constitutionally is the centralization of a lot of federal power, not just with the Reconstruction Amendments, even before then, where, you know, federalism tilts pretty heavily toward the federal government um, after the Civil War and really for the better part of, you know, a century, if not more, 
And it's only been in the last, you know, 25, 30 years that we've seen federalism tilt ever so slightly back toward the states, largely at the, you know, machinations of a, a conservative majority of Supreme Court justices um, for whom federalism has been one of the central projects. Right. And and I think this is often referred to, right, as a federalist federalism revolution. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it, it, I think it's probably the single best um, if imperfect uh, theme that captures the chief justiceship of William H. Rehnquist, um, who obviously was the predecessor to, to Chief Justice John Roberts, that Rehnquist, you know, yes, he was a conservative Republican, but he was very much a devout federalist in the sense that he thought that the federal government had been given too much power, that states had not enough power, and that we should leave more and more decisions, more and more uh, regulatory choices, more and more powers to the states. Um, and that's reflected in a number of Supreme Court decisions handed down during his tenure that had the effect, and in some cases, the the, the overt uh, purpose of cabining at least some of Congress's regulatory powers. And and, and what was the, the seminal reasoning behind this position that Rehnquist and others took? What was their argument for for this? I mean, I think the, the, the basic argument was that, you know, the sort of the Supreme Court for the better part of I don't know, 60 years starting in, you know, starting with the New Deal, um, had removed meaningful checks on the federal government's regulatory powers and basically had opened the door for Congress, especially under the uh, the so-called Commerce Clause, the power to regulate commerce among the states, um, had sort of allowed Congress to reach into so much of the territory that at least according to the conservatives, the founders had intended to be left to states and local governments to handle. Um, and so that, you know, the the claim was very much an originalist one, that this was restoring the original understanding of the balance of power between states and the federal government. I think, you know, what I've never fully been able to accept or understand about that argument um, is that there was such a fundamental restructuring of constitutional relations after the Civil War, not just in the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, but as we said, you know, in the notion of what it was and wasn't appropriate for a federal government to regulate. Um, you know, I mean, Jeremy, it's in the middle of the Civil War, for example, that Congress creates a Department of Education. Um, that was not a war move, right? Uh, Congress, you know, passes the Morrill Land Grant Act. Congress charters the National Railroad. I mean, these are all you know, not wartime measures, but it's part of a, a move to sort of no, recognize that the federal government was a much stronger, much more central institution. And then part and parcel with that, Jeremy, is as technology has evolved, you know, the Constitution, so far as it gives Congress the, the power to regulate interstate commerce, you know, commerce looks a lot different today than it did in 1787, 1788. I mean, I, I used to play this game with my students when I taught at American University in D.C., where we'd be talking about the Commerce Clause, and I'd ask them to look down at their desks and find anything on their person that didn't travel across state lines. Right. <laughs> um, it's actually a little harder to do in Texas, <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, so so I think the the you know, there, it's it's both a methodological position, Jeremy, that like originalism is what produces this respect for federalism, but also in some respects a um, a very sort of static understanding of the Constitution. That's grounded in the notion um, that the that that in the abstract, ha giving Congress, giving the federal government too much power is just bad, um, and so the default proposition should be limiting that power, if not to the text of the Constitution, then to sort of you know clear implications from the text. 
So, so the obvious question that has to be asked is how much of that is really about race? Um, one of the one of the seminal moments, of course, for Rehnquist and others, right, is the, the civil rights revolution. Is is this a, a really a political response to the civil rights revolution? I, I think it is in part. Um, I think you know, Jeremy. I, I think it's 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 hard to generalize at that level of abstraction. But I think for some folks, race and the civil rights movement was either a motivating cause or an indirect cause, um, and I mean that in two different respects. So one, um, Congress responds to the civil rights movement by passing some of the most aggressive federal legislation in American history, but grounds at least one of those statutes, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, um, principally in the Commerce Clause, um, right? And actually not in the the reconstruction power to enforce the 14th Amendment, at least in part because Congress was trying to avoid an old Supreme Court case called the Civil Rights Cases that had made it impossible to use the 14th Amendment to regulate private conduct. Um, and so I think, you know, the the real sort of full extent of the Commerce Clause had become sort of apparent and capitalized upon by Congress and the Civil Rights Movement. That was part of the pushback. Um, the Voting Rights Act and sort of singling out states for pre-clearance treatment if they had a pattern of voting discrimination. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, whether overt or not, Jeremy, I think it's impossible to disentangle the the role of race and the civil rights movement from you know the the modern federalism that 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 characterizes so many conservatives. Uh, why such the emphasis? Why such an emphasis on states? I mean, other countries uh, that have similar federal systems have provinces and regions similar to states, but in the United States, we seem to have not only a legal emphasis on states, but also a cultural emphasis on states. Yeah, it's it's the right question, and I don't have a great answer. I mean, you know, the the story you'll you'll hear is you know that of course our country was founded. Um, I mean, this is the controversial question. Our country was founded, some folks will tell you, by states, right? That is to say, 13 states got together and agreed um, to form a country. You know, that's not the story the Supreme Court really has endorsed. I mean, the Chief Justice John Marshall, in his seminal opinion in McCulloch versus Maryland, which really is the decision that comes as close as any to explaining how the Constitution came to be. Um, One of the most important things he holds in McCulloch is that the Constitution was not created by the states, it was created by the people. Um, and you know that, and he points, for example, to the fact that the preamble of the Constitution originally said "we, the people of," and then it listed the thirteen states. Right. Um, right. And they changed that to just "we, the people of the United States." Um, so I, you know, I think part of it is this notion that there was a surrender of sovereignty when the states entered the union. But guys, I mean, even that, even that concept. Um, I think is factually flawed. I mean, if we want to talk about numbers, yes, the original 13 colonies were independent states at the time that they agreed to join the United States. And then at the time, you know, they arguably had that sovereignty still at the time that they decided to ratify the Constitution. But other than those 13 colonies slash states, you know, I think what, four other states were independent countries at the time they joined the Union. So Texas, um, California, Hawaii, and I always uh, I always forget the fourth one. Um, you know, I think Vermont. Uh, indeed, well, but so w- w- that leaves well over thirty, right? Well over sixty percent of the current states um, as entities that had no existence before they were states. They were federal territories, um, and so if we talk about like Oklahoma, for example, um, Oklahoma was a federal territory, and the notion that you know when it became a state it had all of this residual sovereignty that was then therefore a critical part of respecting the constitution 
you know, I think that's, I think that's a, 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 a central hook for much of this modern analysis, but also a flawed premise. Um, the other piece of this, and I think we can't, you know, leave this out of the story is, you know, the states, the, the role of states in federalism, I think has become an increasingly critical, um, uh, hill to die on for Republicans. And I mean, Republicans, not conservatives, um, as the sort of demographics of the country have shifted, where, you know, protecting against inroads um, that would, you know, dilute the power of small states in the Senate um, or expanding the House of Representatives, like preserving the relative political power, the relatively unequal political power of small, typically, you know, not always, but typically Republican states has become a really important part of this mission. It's a big part of why there's opposition to statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico, for example. And so, you know, I think I think federalism is both a sort of abstract principle that's easy to get behind, and it has become a wedge to be deployed in appropriate circumstances to preserve particular conceptions of Republican political power in our modern and current polity. It, it, that's such a, a helpful answer, Stephen. It, it, it reminds me of, of many of the debates, of course, that you already referred to surrounding the, the Civil War. Uh, one of the great speeches, of course, in American history, Lincoln's uh, Cooper Union address, he makes precisely the point you make, which is that actually the states don't exist without the federal government. Exactly so. And, 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 and that the states all chose to join the union rather than, you know, go their own way, which, you know, I mean, that's, that's especially true of the states that had some modicum of independence beforehand. Exactly, exactly. So the, the question this leads to quite naturally is if there's been this federalism revolution uh, among, in particular, uh, Republicans uh, serving perhaps their principled interests, but also maybe their political interests, why have we now seen, uh, particularly in the last few years, but not exclusively in these last few years, what seem to be a set of policy positions taken by uh, Republican leadership in the United States that seems to run against exactly those principles? Well, I mean, at the risk of being cynical, I mean, I think that the the fealty for federalism on the part of national politicians, and this is not true just of Republicans, I think Democrats are guilty of the same phenomenon, Um that, that that federalism is especially popular when someone else is in charge, um, and and it's especially unpopular when you're in charge. Um, and so, you know, I think we saw a heck of a lot about federalism from Republicans when you know President Obama was in office, and when Democrats controlled one or both chambers of Congress for for various points of his presidency. Just as you know, obviously now it's the it's the Democrats I think who are beating the drum the loudest on federalism in the age of Trump. Um, you know, the reality is our, our polity being what it is, there are always going to be a handful of states that are vehemently opposed to the current president. Um, and I think the question is, you know, to what extent are we being consistent in our views of what federalism requires and what it doesn't? It, I, I think that makes sense, but it's just it's so striking that um, if, if federalism means anything, it, and, and you quoted Rehnquist in your Washington Post piece, I think, on this, right? If, if federalism means anything, it's that the federal government shouldn't be sending its uh, forces in to patrol your streets. Uh, but yet now the debate, as you say, seems to have flipped on this. How should we understand that debate today? Well, I mean, I think the, you know, I think the debate, first of all, I think the, I think the Portland story is, is a lot more complicated than a lot of the headlines are making it out to be, because I think in Portland we're seeing the con the, the convergence of 
areas of clear federal authority and areas of incredibly questionable federal authority. Um, and so, you know, depending upon your priors, you can point to one or the other and say what's going on in Portland is perfectly legitimate or what's going on is, you know, uh, one step short of the brown shirts, right? I mean, it's, you know, pick your poison. Um, I, you know, Jeremy, I think, I think there are folks who have been consistent. I mean, I think so, for example, even the most progressive Democrats never would never have endorsed the proposition that federalism means nothing, right? Would never have thought that like there was no room for states and there was nothing for states to do. Um, I think what's, what's, what's especially problematic to me is that, you know, there was never a point where Democrats were as methodologically committed and philosophically committed to federalism as Republicans were. And so that's why to me, the, you know, what I see as the hypocrisy of the folks who today see no problem with what the president's doing, um, rings a little more strongly than, you know, Democrats who all of a sudden are, you know, sort of sounding the alarms about or Democrats who are not as, as quick to sound the alarms about federalism when a Democrat's in charge. Like, I think, you know, one of those seems more inconsistent with core principles than the other. Is is there a federalist argument to be made for uh, what we're seeing in Portland? It seems as if the attorney general is trying to make that argument, right? He argues that these forces have been sent in to protect federal courthouses. Yeah, I mean, and this is this is where I think we have to separate out, you know, the good from the bad from the ugly. I mean, I think there's no question under any conception of federalism that the federal government has both the right and perhaps even the obligation to defend itself, to protect federal property, to protect federal officers, to investigate uniquely federal crimes, whatever those happen to be. Um, I think where where the where the real controversy starts vis-a-vis Portland is, you know, do we think it's appropriate for the federal government to be sending in such a large response force um, in a context in which they're doing more than that, right? So that is to say, in a context in which they're not just forming a phalanx around the federal courthouse, but they're actually going out onto the streets and engaging with the protesters, um, you know, where they're trying to basically be a, a effectively riot control. And so this is where I think the the events of the last fortnight in Portland really illustrate the nuance of federalism, which is that, you know, one can believe perfectly reasonably that the federal government has tons of power to protect federal buildings, to enforce federal laws, to do everything that the government says it's doing in Portland, but actually that it's crossing the line repeatedly when it goes after protesters who haven't violated any federal statutes when it, you know, shows force, you know, blocks and blocks away from any federal property, um, when it arrests individuals arguably without probable cause. And I think, Jeremy, that's the tricky part is that, you know, the concern is both legally about abusing the authorities and also optically about setting it up as sort of a, you know, federal government versus states scenario, whereas, you know, so much of the modern mantra has been that the federal government is, you know, supporting and cooperate is backstopping on the states, not not adverse right. to them. Right. Well, and I, I will say as a historian, it is actually very rare in our history. It's not unprecedented, but it's very rare that the federal government does send force into a local community without the consent of some local leadership. There have well, been a- and, and not only that, and Jeremy, and the examples are with maybe a, a, a handful of exceptions. The examples of that happening are all contexts in which it was because the local community was fundamentally averse to the relevant federal statutes, right? So, you know, during the civil rights movement, I mean, Eisenhower, Johnson, sorry, Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Johnson all send troops into different Southern states to enforce desegregation orders. Um, I, I don't see those as being of a piece with Portland, right? Because 
I don't, you know, whoever the president wants to pin the blame on for the violence in Portland, it's not the state of Oregon. Um, and it's not the city of Portland. And so, you know, the notion that the those prior examples set a precedent for federal overriding of local authority, it's true to me, Jeremy, but it's not, it doesn't answer the question of whether it's appropriate here. Right. Now, does it matter, Steve, who the federal government sends in? In the past, it's generally been members of the military uh, that have been sent in the examples you gave. Uh, does it matter in this case that it's Department of Homeland Security? So I think it, I don't think it matters constitutionally. I think it does matter as a matter of statute. Um, and so to, to be a nerdy lawyer for a second, you know, the Congress, for better or for worse, has parceled out who has which authorities when it comes to this kind of federal response. Um, and one of the I guess ironies is that Congress has actually given far more power to the military um, in this context than to law enforcement on the theory that the military mission is so radically different from the law enforcement mission. So this would actually, I think, Jeremy, be a different story if President Trump had sent in, you know, the Oregon National Guard or the Army to restore order in Portland, where the relevant statutes don't um, sort of parse out one by one what the authorities are, where the, the, they just say, go in and clean up the mess. Versus, you know, using this very specific authority given to the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11 to use any CBP or any DHS officers, including Customs and Border Protection, but only, Jeremy, for five specifically delineated functions, um, none of which run to riot control or shows of force or, you know, protest interdiction. And so I think it matters as a matter of sort of technical statute, um, which authorities the government's using. And I think it matters optically because I think, you know, there's a reason why President Trump is using CBP um, as opposed to any other federal agency. It's because, you know, he has more control. It's because he wants the visuals of, you know, CBPs like lining up like that. Um, And I think all that sort of, you know, it doesn't necessarily sound, Jeremy, in constitutional rules. I think it does sound in constitutional norms. Um, about the appropriate division of federal and state authority. The problem, as we've seen over and over again during this administration, is that those norms you know, don't necessarily mean that much to, to the, the current president. Right. It, it, it's also very likely that he's sending uh, these forces in from Custom and Border Patrol because he'd prefer to send the military forces in, but they won't go. Yeah, they won't go or they won't do what he wants them to do. I mean, I think, you know, the military, I mean, the the Oregon National Guard is actually trained in this. Um, The relevant divisions of the army or the relevant units and regiments from the army are trained in how to do this. And so it's entirely possible that, you know, the military, I I don't know if they wouldn't go, Jeremy, but I don't know that they would go and produce the visuals the president wants. Well, Um, they wouldn't do what he wants them to do. Right. And, 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 you know, that ought to be an indictment of the whole thing. But of course, you know, in the, the day and age we live in, of course, you know, folks, folks are looking for any justification to defend what the president's doing. And so the fact that we can point to pictures of damage to one of the courthouses and the fact that we can point to individual episodes of violence directed toward federal officers, you know, for, for, for far too many people, that's enough to justify everything the federal government's doing in Portland. And, you know, that's the part that makes me nervous because we ought to be able to say, yes, you can go this far, but no further. Where will change come from? Where will we see a redefinition of federalism? It's hard to see it playing out at a a local level in states that are now, in many cases, controlled by super majorities of of either party. How how will we how will we see a redefinition of federalism for a new generation of politicians? Well, I think I think we'll see two different things. I mean, I think one, you know, a lot of the what we think of as the sort of the rules of federalism really are statutory. Um, so. 
you know, the authority that the president's using to send these officers into Portland is only because Congress has given him that authority. And so it's entirely possible that one of the many lessons Congress is going to take away from, you know, not just what's happened in Portland, but also what happened in D.C. last month um, is to be much more specific and careful um, in giving these kinds of powers to any president. So I think we'll see a lot of statutory reforms that may not be sort of couched in terms of federalism, but that will actually have, you know, federalism effects insofar as they limit what the federal government can do. Um, but also, I mean, I think, you know, this is where the Supreme Court looms large. I mean, I, this is, you know, the one of the consequences of a solidly entrenched conservative majority on the court is, I think, very little appetite to revisit federalism or to, to sort of um, tilt the scale back toward the federal government as a constitutional matter. And, you know, that's where I think who makes the next appointment to the court, how the balance of the court shifts in the next 10, 15, 20 years is, you know, once again, going to be part of the story. Are we likely, uh, Steve, to see uh, also a flowering of new writing by yourself and others on federalism? Some f- new thinking about it? Maybe. I mean, I, you know, I, I, at the risk of at the risk of getting a lot of my colleagues into trouble, I'm not sure there's that much new to say about federal. I mean, there is, you know, for the better part of the last ten or fifteen years, there has been this resurgence of progressive federalism scholarship. Um, Led, although not 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 only, but but I think principally by um, Heather Gerken, who's now the dean of of the uh, law school, um, and Jessica Bullman Posen at Columbia, um, sort of cooperative federalism and how you know there's actually a lot you know why progressives should not fear federalism, why there's a lot more for um, good government to come from finding ways to to incentivize states and local governments to actually cooperate with the federal government and vice versa, um, you know. I, I don't know that there's any great new insight to divine beyond that move. The notion that like federalism is not um, federalism does not have to just be pro conservative. <laughs> um, but I also think you know I, the the sort of there's this metaphysical question about Trump that I think is going to infect you know Jeremy at least legal scholarship and I'm sure political science scholarship as well. Which is to what extent are we all going to be looking at Trump as just this aberrational moment? And then we return to the normal things we fight over. And to what extent have we now actually so fundamentally shifted the rules of the game that prior conceptions of what the scholarly debates were are, you know, antiquated and vestigial. And now we're fighting over much more basic ideas, not like, is there such a thing as federalism, but rather, you know, <laughs> do we actually believe that anyone's going to enforce it? Um, and so, you know, I, I actually think it's a much messier, deeper, scarier question about the extent to which any of those great classical debates are going to matter um, in the ivory tower or elsewhere in the in the coming you know months and years. It, it also seems though a little bit a little bit hopeful though that it, we all seem to agree with with the basic concept of federalism that we need federalism and division of powers and it's more that we need to go beyond the the different political tidal waves to understand how federalism uh, can become something that defines our institutions beyond politics. Um, I, I like that phrasing. I guess I just I'm not sure. Do we all agree? I mean, I, you know, I think. You know, if you watch Fox News, if you look at right-wing social media, um, you know, I, I I can't even count on one hand the number of of um, highly visible uh, commentators who are criticizing the president for anything about Portland um, and who are falling back on federalism, and, you know, in a, in, a, in a, about anything. I mean, there's there was this remarkable op-ed 
um, that John Yu published the other day. John Yu, uh, uh, alum of the Bush administration office of legal counsel and a law professor at Berkeley, um, where he was arguing against a hypothetical future national mask mandate from a President Biden. Um, and what I found striking about the op-ed is that there were all of these paragraphs in it that were not about masks specifically um, that should have been that could have been repurposed to criticize what Trump was doing in Portland. And there's nary a word about Portland. Uh, and so I guess you know my concern is that there is a tendency on the part of too many people, you know, I think on both sides, but I at least see it more on the on the on the president side um, to sort of abandon all principles in the name of winning. And, and I think, you know, that that's what I say when I, you know, when I worry about whether we're going to get back to a point where the principles actually are doing work. Um, that's the question I, that, that's the central question that the, you know, after Trump leaves me with. And, and I guess that's the, the appropriate question for us to close on, Steve. One of the purposes of our podcast is to use history and scholarship to better understand our world. You've certainly helped with that, but also to change our world. And, and it does seem to me that uh, at the core of democracy is the notion that power matters, but it can't be only power. It can't be a Hobbesian world. And, and so what, what are your strategies for making principles matter, even if we can't agree on the principles again, getting us beyond what to me also, and I think you've implied this, often looks like uh, a sort of after the fact, a post hoc justification for so, power. I mean- I mean, I think the first step, Jeremy, is is nuance, and I think that's where the podcast helps. Um, and that's you know certainly a lot of the work I try. I mean, you know, I, my my wife mocks me all the time for how much I'm on Twitter, um, and she's right. But like, you know, I, I my my best defense of being on Twitter is trying to raise the level of public debate. Yeah, um, you, do think, that. you do well, that. Well, eh, with with mixed effects. Um, and, and I think you know that because I think the first step toward that is is having the ability to see nuance, having the ability to see that like. The guy, you know, the the, poli- the politician I like is doing something that could be used for things I don't like, um, which we've all sort of forgotten how to do. Um, I think the next step is getting institutions to reassert their authority at the expense of their, you know, fellow polit- partisan travelers, right? So, um, you know, get back to a place where the separation of powers matters more than the separation of parties, where, you know, Democrats in Congress are actually willing to rein in a Democratic president and vice versa for Republicans, um, and, you know, Jeremy, I think a lot of that comes from who we're electing and why we're electing them. And I, I'm, you know, I'm the amateur here when we talk about the polarization of the American polity. But, you know, one of the, th- one of the reasons why I'm vehemently opposed to, to partisan gerrymandering is because I think it has the effect of removing those voices from the legislature. Um, where, you know, if, if, if all that matters is whether you win your primary as opposed to your general, you're going to run to your party's extreme, which means you're not going to be interested in compromise. You're not going to be interested in, you know, institutional pressures. Um, and, and I just, I, I, we need some of that extremism, but we also need moderation. And I think the, you know, a government without moderates is a government that's going to look like this. Um, right. Just, you know, maybe a democratic Form of this, like a, a, a Democratic run form of this, as opposed to a Republican form of this, but um, but like this, and I think that's to me that's that's the vacuum in which these principles go to die. Right, right. Is there a role also though in getting people to actually see the value in living by these principles? I mean, it seems to me that's what the law enforcement question raises at some level. Uh, whether you like the people in the street or not, do you do you believe they have the right to be there, and will you defend their being there even if you don't like what they're saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree with that, Jeremy. I'm just, I'm so not optimistic that that's going to be the wedge. Um, 
because there's so much othering going on. I mean, the the speed with which, you know, folks who want to support the president are willing to dismiss all of the protesters in Portland as, you know, Antifa, if they even understand what that means, um, despite plenty of physical video evidence to the contrary. I just, you know, I, we're at a point in American history where for better or for worse, um, folks are not giving each other the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, the that's not going to be cured overnight. Um, and so I think the only way to sort of get us back to a place where that happens is to be led there by people for whom that's a value that they care about. And I think, you know, one of the hardest things, even if things go the right way for Democrats in November, I think one of the hardest things that Biden's going to confront as a president is simultaneously trying to appease the more radical and radicalized elements of the Democratic Party while governing um, on the notion that like one of the president's responsibilities is actually to govern effectively and not just to, you know, provide talking points to his supporters. Right. Oh, very well said. Zachary, as someone who follows this very closely, like many of our listeners and as a, as a rising generation, is, is this persuasive to you that, that federalism requires new attention and leaders who will pay attention to it in this way? Or should it all just be power? I think that what we're seeing now, especially with the rise of BLM in recent weeks, is a new attentiveness of young Americans towards the importance of good government, good governance, not just governance from one party or the other. But I also think what is really necessary is a rededication to the teaching of civics. I think in our public schools and in schools in in, in non-public schools across the country, there's really a lack of good civics education, and I think without that, our generation will struggle to. To, to see the importance of federalism and the importance of good governance. I, I agree with all of that. Yeah, you agree with that, Steve? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with all that. I mean, e- even more, I mean, profoundly agree with that. I mean, I think the, the decline of civics education is a problem, but also, you know, the sort of, even the polarization of what education we're doing. I mean, the, you know, the battle over history books here in Texas as just right. one of many examples. And so, you know, I just, it's, it starts, I mean, it starts, we're, we're starting them young. And I think one of the things we ought to really be thinking about is how to educate our children, not to have our political views, but to have our political curiosity. Right. Um, and to, to, you know, to not take anyone's word for it, to make up their own minds about who they, who they agree with and why, what they believe in and why, and not just because, you know, the sticker is a, an elephant or a donkey. Right. Well, and I think, Steve, in your, in your scholarship and your public work, you model that. Uh, what you do so well is you take these issues that are highly politicized and you help break them down and help us to understand, as you did in your analysis of, of law enforcement issues today, the different arguments on different sides, and then you weigh them and, and give us a sense of why you see one argument as more persuasive in one moment. It's a, it's a very Madisonian way of approaching these issues, I think. Well, that's, that's very kind of you. And, and, and the, 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 the thing I find most horrifying is, is how often these days that leads you to be attacked for being, a, a, um, what's the, for being squishy, I think is the term. Yes, yes. I, I, I hear that quite often, but we're, we're embracing squishiness in this podcast. <laughs> Steve, thank you so much for joining us. I hope our listeners will follow you on Twitter and your, your uh, frequent work uh, in the Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, and elsewhere. Zachary, thank you for your poem and for your insights. And most of all, thank you to our listeners. This is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. 
The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.